Hey, this is Andre Butler, pastor of Faith Experience Church. You're listening to the Faith Experience Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this message helps you engage your faith and experience the future God has for you. This morning, we're continuing a series we began last week entitled Clean. And of course, as we said last week, this is you know, the new year, and usually when you get into the new year, there's some level of optimism about what the year is going to bring. But there is something that has infected many of us that can actually keep us from having the type of year that we're hoping to have. That something is called shame. Dictionary.com defines shame as the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable improper, ridiculous, etc., done by oneself or another. One minister defined shame in this way as the sense of failure in the eyes of another person. It can carry with it the intense pain of feeling unworthy, disconnected, and unloved both by God and people. The fact is many people struggle with shame. Some of us struggle with shame because of our past sins, because of regrets, maybe we wish we had done some things differently, uh, because of failures, for example, maybe in the workplace. And our enemy, Satan, likes to use our shame to trap us in our past and to keep us from the future that God wants us to have. He understands that as long as he can get you to continue to feel like you're unworthy, then it's going to be hard for you to receive from God. And so we've begun this series to help you to be free from shame once and for all and to see yourself like God wants you to see yourself, to see yourself like God sees you. Last week, we learned that the blood of Jesus has washed away all of our sin. Amen. Come on. That's worth shouting about right there. It's washed away all of our sin and that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He actually said, I don't remember your sin anymore. I see you as a brand new person. And that whatever God calls clean, we need to call clean. And we need to go ahead and live our lives as though we have never sinned. Today I want to go a little different direction with this. And I'll be honest with you, when God first put in my heart that I was supposed to minister on this particular topic this, I thought I was going a different direction, but I believe that this is a timely message for some people in here, if not, you know, everybody in here. And so I want to talk about the fact that sometimes we don't feel shame because of what we've done, but because of what other people have done to us. And so I want to look at some people in the Bible that had some pretty terrible things happen to them so we can learn from them how to deal with the terrible things that may have happened to us. So let's start here in Second uh, Samuel chapter 13. And just to give you an idea of what's happened in this story, uh, there's a guy by the name of Amnon. He is one of David's sons. And, you know, David was in a time where, you know, God permitted some things that weren't exactly his will uh, because men were still growing and progressing in their understanding of God and God's ways. And so David was king, and he had multiple wives. So with one wife, he had Amnon, and with another wife, he had Tamar. Now, Amnon decided that he was in love with Tamar, his half-sister. Somebody say, yuck. 
And he was so in love with her that he became sick. And his cousin said to him, what, you know, why are you so sick? What's wrong with you? And he told him, I'm, I'm in love with Tamar and I, I can never have her. So his cousin said, this is what you need to do. You need to pretend like you're sick. And when your father comes to visit, you ask him to have Tamar come and prepare a meal for you in front of you. So he said, all right, that's a good idea. And so he did that. And sure enough, King David said, sure, your sister can help you out. So she came to his room and she started making a meal for him. And finally she was done and she tried to give it to him. He said, no, I, I don't want to eat that right now. And he told everybody to get out. And then he said, why don't you come into the bedroom and feed me? So she comes to the bedroom and she wants to bring the food to him. And in verse 11, it reads this, this way. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. There's something wrong with come to bed and sister being in the same. Anyway, no, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? She said, I, I would deal with shame, not because of what I've done, but because of what you're about to do to me. And you will be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for a servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. That, that's, that doesn't sound like good advice. And I really believe that Absalom was using her situation. If you know his story, you know later on he tried to take over the kingdom. But notice this last sentence here. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house, excuse me. The King James Version says it this way, she remained desolate. So Tamar dealt with the pain and the shame of being sexually abused, of being raped by her brother. And I want you to know that God doesn't hold against you what someone did to you. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't hold against you what someone did to you. And the issue with Tamar is, is really, there was nothing wrong with how she responded. I mean, this was a horrible situation. This had changed her life forever, particularly back in that time. You know, this meant that, that some things were going to have to happen a little differently for her than they would have originally. Uh, and, and so she ended up in this place where she's living in her brother's house and she's She's desolate, and the word desolate there means to be stunned. It means to be devastated, and I think all of us can understand that. 
And some of us have been in that place. Some of us might be in that place right now. And what we have to learn from this situation is that we cannot remain desolate. We can't stay there. You see, Satan's goal in attacking you in this way was to have this event define you, was to have you constantly remembering this moment in time, constantly suffering this injustice again and again and again. He wants you stuck in that place. And you cannot allow yourself to stay there. You cannot allow yourself to live devastated. You cannot allow this to define you or you're giving in to the enemy. You're giving in to why this happened in the first place. Instead, you got to learn from Paul. In Acts chapter 14, we find Paul in a different type of situation, but I'd argue is equally awful. In verse 20, 19, it says, Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. Could you imagine a crowd stoning you? Literally, if everybody in the room just decided to pick up some rocks and start throwing it at you with the goal of killing you. Come on, if one person walk up to you and throw a rock at you, you're like, oh, it's on. You have lost your mind. You should have threw that harder because now you're going to die. Am I, am I the only one that feels like that? Or how about when the whole room picks up rocks and they start throwing stones at you, and the only reason why they stop is because you're unconscious. They think you're dead. And he probably should have been, but he had God's protection. He had God's help. But notice, so notice the next thing that he did. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. And the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. He didn't just lay on the ground. He didn't just say, I cannot believe this has happened to me. He had been doing the right thing, preaching the gospel, helping people to experience God. And he was stoned for it. He didn't let that keep him on the ground as awful as it was. As much pain as he was in, he chose to get himself back up to go back into that town. And if you were to keep reading his story, he goes back to that town later and preaches again. At some point, you must get up so that you can experience the future that God has for you because he still has a future for you. Well, there's someone else that we can look at. His name is Joseph. And in Genesis 37, we read about Joseph being done wrong by his brothers. If you know his story, Joseph was about 17 years old, and he was a bit of a tattletale. He told on his older brothers, and they were, some of them were over a decade older than he was. He was uh, his father's favorite son, so much so that his father gave him a, a coat of many colors, so his brothers hated him for that. And then he was a bit of a big mouth. God gave him a dream, and instead of keeping it to himself or just sharing it with maybe one or two people, he had to tell the whole family. And God gave him a second dream. He had to tell the whole family as well. And, and, and of course, the dream was everybody was going to bow down to him. If this was your little brother, he'd be getting on your nerves too, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? But hey, these are not, you know, horrible crimes. He's just young. But his brothers were so tired of him, and they were so jealous of him. Some of that was his father's fault. 
because he, he was his favorite. But they were so angry with him that when they got the chance, they decided to kill him. And one of his brothers kind of was like, no, 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 don't kill him. He's trying to save his life. So he said, no, just, just throw him in a pit. So they did. They grabbed him. They threw him in a pit, took his robe off of him, you know. And the Bible teaches that while they were sitting there eating, they saw some traders coming by, really slavers. And somebody got the idea, well, you know what? Instead of killing him, let's just sell him and let's make some money off of him. So we pick up in verse 28, and it says, So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. How, how awful is that? The shame of being sold into slavery by your brothers. The shame of there being a price, somebody determining how much you're worth. The traders took him to Egypt. And sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. That was the one brother that tried to save his life. So he figured, throw him in the pit. He'll learn his lesson. I'll come get him. But he didn't realize what his brothers had sold him into slavery. So when he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, the boy is gone. What will I do now? What am I going to tell dad? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in his blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Joseph is now dealing with shame really in a couple ways. Number one, his own brothers sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Number two, if you were to keep reading his story, he lives as a slave. You know, life as a slave, of course, is awful. It's far removed from being uh, the favorite son of a rich man. So now he's a slave. He's living with the shame of being seen as nothing, being seen as worthless. And if you know his story, you know, he goes from the pit to slavery to prison, sometimes that's life, man. Sometimes it seems like that. I get out of one bad situation, I end up in a worse one. Then I end up in even a worse situation than that. But God, of course, moved. And he ended up becoming number two in the nation of Egypt. He was prime minister of Egypt, and God will do that. He'll bring you out of prison, and, and he'll bring you to that high place. He'll get you out of the, the, the jailhouse and put you in the penthouse if you'll stay faithful. And so almost 22 years later, there's a time of famine, and his brothers have to come to Egypt to try to get something to eat because, you know, there's famine. If they don't find some support, they're all going to die. And if you read the whole story, I won't read it all to you, you know that Joseph kind of gives them a hard time at first. And I understand that. I'd have given them a hard time too. But he finally did what we read in, in chapter 45 and verse 1. It said, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? 
but his brothers were speechless, and I'm sure scared. Like, it wasn't my idea, it was his. Reuben was like, hey, I went, I went back to get you. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Now, now what's interesting about that is that he's telling them, don't be upset. Don't you be angry. But wouldn't you think he'd be upset? Wouldn't you think that he would be angry, that he would be saying, I've been waiting 22 years for this moment. I have thought of every detail of what I'm about to do to you. I'm tearing off every nail. Come on, you know what I'm saying. I'm about to torture you like you have never. Instead, he's saying, don't you be angry. In other words, I'm already over it. I'm no longer angry about it. I'm no longer uh, uh, upset about it. In fact, he goes a step farther and he says, it was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. He was partially right. God didn't have himself sold into slavery. But God is a God who will take what Satan meant for evil and turn it into good. He went on to say, you know, this, the fact, tell, tell them about the famine, tell them that, you know, they, they were going to be in trouble. But God sent me here to take care of you all. And what we really can see from here is that Joseph got to the place where he was willing to forgive them for what they did. He decided he was no longer going to carry what happened to him in his, into his future. And, and some of us, we need to follow the example of Joseph. You know, Joseph basically had a robe, right? And this is the bloody robe. And so he, he could have, I'm sure when he first became a slave, he probably carried this in his heart, on his life, all the time. My brother sold me into slavery. They call him slave. Come over here. And he, I'm a slave now. I can't believe they did this to me. I can't believe my life is over. This is, this is awful. But at some point, God was able to get over to him that you can't live there. You've got to let it go. You've got to trust that I still have a future for you. You've still got, you've still got something great that I want you to, to do. I've still got dreams I want you to fulfill. But the only way you're going to be able to fulfill those dreams is if you cast off the bloody robe and you decide to live the life I have for you and leave that in your past. And some of us today, we need to cast off the bloody robe. Whatever they did to you, however bad it was, however awful it was, however unfair it was, whoever they were, you got to let it go. You got to forgive them. You got to move on into what God has for you in your future. Today is your day to let it go. Somebody turn to him and tell him, let it go. Acts chapter 16. Verse 22, notice something else that happened to Paul, an awful thing. Paul's been preaching and, and Philippi, and what's really wild about this story is God's the one that told him to go. It wasn't like he went to the wrong place. You know, sometimes things happen because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But this was not the case. He wanted to go a couple other places. And God said, no, you can't go there. No, you can't go there. God said, you're going to Philippi. He goes to Philippi. 
God uses him to do a miracle. A woman who was possessed with the demon spirit is set free. You think at that point, you know, the heavens would open, right? The blessings would fall. The complete opposite happened. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. You want to talk about shame. Can you imagine? One minute you're preaching and you're casting out a devil. The next minute a mob is stripping you naked. You're right here in the middle of the street and they done stripped all your clothes off. They, they, they take a whip and they beat you. You're out here yelling out in front of all these folk, men, women, children. Then they take you and throw you in the prison, and then like, like the prison wasn't enough to hold you, they're going to put you in the inner prison, the dungeon, and put some stocks around your feet so you can't go anywhere. And Lord knows what they have planned for tomorrow. We're talking about shame. And yet we read what happens in verse 25, where the Bible says, And at midnight, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. Now, wait a minute. Who does this? I don't know about you. I have to grow more. Because if I'm in this situation, I am complaining. God, I didn't even want to come here. I told you I should have went to Bithynia. I should have went. You told me to come here. God, I didn't have to cast that devil up. She could have kept that devil. <laughs> Am I the only one? I mean, instead of that, instead of complaining, they pray and they start praising God. There's a song I like, and I think it's by Hillsong United, and, and it, it, it's, it's, I think the name of the song is Even When It Hurts. And I love how it says, even when my strength is lost, I'll praise you. Even when I have no song, I'll praise you. Even when it's hard to find the words louder, I'll praise your name. And that's what Paul and Silas did. They're sitting in this prison, and they decided, I'm going to praise you, Father, because there are good things you have done for me. Can anybody say there are some good things God has done for you? You might be dealing with some mess right now, but God has been good to you. Am I right? He said, I'm going to praise you for that, Father. I'm going to praise you because you've been good. I'm going to praise you because I believe you will be good. This is not the end of my story. You're going to turn this thing around. You're going to cause me to still have a great future. And the Bible says when they were praising God, that suddenly there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. When they began to praise God in spite of what had been done to them, God moved mightily. They were singing and then God sang bass. Come on now. There was a shaking in that place. Glory to God. The doors flung open. The stocks fell off. And these guys were suddenly free because they didn't allow what happened to them to keep them from praising God. And the fact that they were willing to praise God loudly because the prisoners heard them is what allowed God to move and set them free. For some of us, you're not going to be free until you start praising God. 
You're not going to be free until you start looking at what he has done for you and being grateful for what he has done for you. Until you get your eyes off of what was done to you and start praising God for what he's done for you. But as you lift your hands and say, Father, I thank you for being good to me. I thank you for washing away my sins. I thank you for healing me. I thank you for opening doors of opportunity. I thank you you still have a future for me. I thank you that you'll take what Satan meant for evil and turn it to my good. When you begin to praise God, you'll get healed up on the inside. God can cause you to be whole again. And God can shake some things up and cause you to have an amazing future. We just got to learn from these guys. In Acts 28, Paul came out of another rough situation. He was shipwrecked. It wasn't even his fault. Then after being shipwrecked, you know, uh, he, he's on an island. And everybody's kind of happy. They have, they've, they've survived. Verse 3 says, as Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on the hand. And the people of the island saw it hanging from his hand, and they said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. Get this. And then once again, if I'm Paul, I, I have an opportunity to be upset. Here I am trying to not be a lazy preacher. They, they building the fire. I'm helping out. Right? And, and here I, I'm the one that gets bit by the snake. Anybody ever felt like that? Everybody in this room, when I'm the one, everybody on the rest saw somebody uh, they must have been posting online somewhere. They were like, all these folk driving 90, and I get a ticket for driving 75. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, Paul, everybody would be bitten. I'm the one that's bitten. Well, of course you are. If you know God, you love God, of course Satan's going to attack you. You may not even know God, but you've got a great destiny and on you. There's something great about you. God wants you to know him and do that. Of course you're going to be attacked. The Bible says don't think it a strange thing when you're in the middle of a fiery trial. It's not strange that bad things may try to happen to you, may come your way. I have to say, one of the things about this life, even if you're following God, is that, you know, it's not always going to be, you're not always going to be on a bed of roses. Things aren't always going to look great. There are going to be times where you, you'll be following God's plan and things will go wrong for a season. You know, you know the story of Moses, how when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and said, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Most of us know the story of the Exodus. Well, what happened the first time that he said that? Pharaoh decided to beat Israel's slaves more. Big picture, they ended up getting beat even more because of what Moses said. Now, Moses is really unpopular. And if you're Moses, hey, God, I did what you told me to do, and the result was, was, was even worse than if I had done nothing. Sometimes you got to go through the valley to get to the promised land. And it's not that God is causing bad things to happen to you. It's just that you have an enemy who's trying to stop you from having what God wants you to have. It's like in the game of football, you know, uh, if you get the ball, you're running back. They give you the ball. The end zone is over there. Guess what? You got to go through the defense. They didn't give you the ball so you can get tackled. They gave you the ball so you can get to the end zone. They've given you some help, some blockers to try to help you get there. But you're going to have to go through somebody. You're going to have to shake somebody. 
before you get there. And sometimes what happens is that God's giving you the ball. He's got somewhere for you to go. He's giving you some angels and some brothers and some sisters to help you along the way, but you're going to have to kick some stuff down. There's going to be some times when it's going to seem like you're going down. You're going to have to get back up. You're going to have to just fight your way into what God has for you. Listen, this is not the life for wimps. You got to, you got to, you got to toughen up. And you got to realize that if you, even if things are down, God's not going to leave you there. You just keep winning. You keep fighting. You keep running. And you will win in the end. What did Paul do? The Bible says Paul shook off the snake into the fire. He didn't have a fit. He just said, oh, you had no business on me. He shook it off, and he was unharmed, and the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a God. Don't let Satan stop you from praising God for the good he's done in your life. Instead, make Satan watch you shake it off. They don't know that was nothing. That's all you got? Make him have to listen to you praise God in, in spite of what's going on in your life. Make him upset because he cannot make you sweat. You got to let it go. You got to move on to what God has for you. One more. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. His holy people, get this, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Now, this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Christians of Ephesus, and it's something that obviously God gave him because it's in the Bible. He prayed that the people would see in their hearts how valuable they were to God. I, I like one translation talks about how he's praying that God will help you to see with the eyes of your heart. And there are really three things that he mentioned. He wanted you to know his inheritance his calling, and his power. And if you study that in Ephesians chapter 1, you can see that. But I want to focus on the fact that he wants you to know uh, about God's rich and glorious inheritance. And sometimes when people teach this, teach this in Ephesians 1 and they read it, they want to translate that, your inheritance. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's inheritance. What's an inheritance? That's your possession. That's your wealth. So God is saying, there is something that I consider to be wealth. See, wealth to God isn't gold. It isn't diamonds. It isn't houses or cars. Wealth to God is people. And I won't take you there for time's sake, but you can look it up later on if you'd like to. But Deuteronomy 32.9 teaches that God's people are God's inheritance. 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 teaches God's people are God's inheritance. When God looks at us, he sees his wealth. When God looks at us, he sees us as Ephesians 2.10 says about us, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God sees us as his masterpiece. Every one of us is one of a kind. Every one of us 
is rare. So if you're one of his diamonds, if you're that valuable to him, you're something like this. Got this big fake diamond in my hand because if this was real, we'd be in our own big massive facility right now. <laughs> but you know, even before I talk about this, you know, imagine a guy, uh, he takes a woman to, to a beach. In fact, I saw this week that Tim Tebow was, uh, he was um, engaged, proposed to uh, his, his girlfriend. And if you know t- anything about Tim Tebow, that's the, the football player that's really well known. God used him in such a way that he's been preaching the gospel one way or another for years. Stayed a virgin until he's 31. They made fun of him like crazy. And he ends up with Miss Universe. It's faithful. It's good to serve God. God is faithful, right? I saw the ring he gave her, too. I'm like, man. She... So, you know, imagine that. He's, hand, he's trying to give this ring to this girl. They're on the beach or something. And he's got this, you know, who knows, three, four, five-carat ring. And he's about to give it to her. And he drops it by mistake in the sand. Do you think she looks at that and says, well, forget it. It's dirty now. Or do you think she picks it up, just go ahead and wipe that off and put it on my finger? Just because you may have been dropped in the dirt doesn't mean that God won't pick you up, wipe you off, and value you just as much as he did before. You're one of his masterpieces. You're one of his diamonds. He does not hold against you what somebody did to you. As far as he's concerned, no matter what you've done, no matter what they've done to you, you're clean. And now you just have to agree with him and decide, I am no longer a victim. Instead, I'm a child of God. I'm a victor with an amazing future. Thank you for tuning in to another Faith Experience podcast. Remember, God has a future for you.